So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal wow. of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so with the right innovation, uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agency believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. America's fracking boom has created a need for more ways to transport oil and gas through the country, but it's been difficult to get pipelines developed, in part because of local opposition to pipelines and, interestingly, to other forms of fossil fuel transportation as well. With us is Alan Four. He's the Vice President for Public Affairs at Kinder Morgan, which operates or owns an interest in 85,000 miles of pipelines and 152 terminals. Kinder Morgan's pipelines transport natural gas, gasoline, crude oil, carbon dioxide, and more. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. Good to be here. We also have Tom Covert, an assistant professor at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Tom studies investment behavior in energy markets with a focus on the role of regulation and has done some work recently relevant to pipelines. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me. And we have Ryan Kellogg, a professor at the Harris School of Public Policy and a research associate at the National Bureau for Economic Research. Ryan's research bridges industrial organization, energy economics, and environmental policy, focusing on the economics of resource extraction and transportation. So again, very relevant to pipelines. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's start with Alan. Tell us a little bit about Kinder Morgan, Alan, and what it does. Well, I think you gave a good introduction, so I appreciate that. Um, but we're one of the, the largest uh, midstream companies in the United States. Um, and midstream generally means the, the transportation piece. Um, we're, we're, by and large, not a company that uh, drills for energy, with some exceptions in the crude business. And we're not a company that's in the retail business, so you're not going to see a, a Kinder Morgan gas station. But we transport and store, uh, and we do that through primarily our pipeline systems. Uh, we also have a fleet of uh, Jones Act tankers that uh, service the U.S. coast um, and uh, a great many terminals, 150, roughly 150 terminals that store not just liquid product, but bulk products. So uh, we refer to ourselves as really a transportation company, and it operates, our pipelines at least, much like a toll system. Uh, We charge companies a toll, a tariff, to transport product on our lines. And 
we have uh, over the years grown significantly by acquisitions and by new construction and we build our projects acquire our projects to make our footprint across the country as diverse as possible if you look at a copy of our asset map you'll see those 85,000 miles of pipelines basically traversing all of the major shale plays in the country so our pipelines are positioned um, to have access to those who ship on pipelines uh, the energy products to really all corners of the country. We do business in most of the states in the United States, and as I said, uh, are a leader in the transportation industry. In the Chicago market, Illinois, for example, our, our natural gas pipelines transport uh, over 60% of the natural gas to service Illinois. So um, I think it's important, uh, and I appreciate opportunities like this because my job at the company is to explain, in, whether it's regulators, uh, elected officials, the public, and others, what we do and how all of this, this transportation piece fits together and the important role that energy infrastructure plays in getting energy from point A to point B. So when someone goes uh, here in town uh, and turns on natural gas, which is pretty important today, uh, since in the 20s, uh, they know generally where that comes from and how it gets there, which is basically from a big pipe to a small pipe and the important role that the midstream and the middle part of that plays. I want to ask you a little bit about the conditions for developing new pipelines right now. I think most Americans are familiar with the battles over the Dakota Access Pipeline that carries oil into the U.S. from Canada. But there have been lesser-known controversies in many U.S. states wherever pipelines have to cross rivers or go through forests or pass near someone's drinking water aquifer. Um, but at the same time, a lack of pipelines makes it more difficult for the United States to use its own resources. So this winter, we had a Russian tanker in, the, in Boston Harbor carrying liquefied natural gas. And that happened um, despite economic sanctions on Russia and despite the fact that we have abundant natural gas nearby in Pennsylvania, but not, no pipeline to deliver it. Um, why is it so difficult to build those pipelines, Alan? You know, I'll, I'll start with the, the, the last part that you mentioned about LNG uh, import and export. Uh, and if you're familiar with our footprint, we have a facility that we're retrofitting currently, Elba Island in Georgia, uh, just outside of Savannah, Georgia, that when it was built several years ago, it was built as an import facility. Now we're moving, just switching it to an export facility. It just shows you the dynamic nature of our industry, too, and the, how the shale plays have really changed the whole, the whole plumbing of our system and, and the ability to uh, move significant more quantities of natural gas. Um, so the natural gas from the Marcellus shale is now being shipped to Georgia for export rather than much closer opportunities in New England. That's a whole separate podcast for you, probably, to talk about <laughs> New England and its, its energy supply. But, but going back to the, 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 the general question about uh, pipelines, um, you're correct. The, the, it is an extremely challenging time. I never thought, and I, my background is, is in politics uh, and grew up managing campaigns, and I, I never thought that a pipeline, 
would become the subject of a national debate. Pipelines are generally have been, you know, before Keystone, you never really heard much about pipelines. They just sort of went about doing their business. And most people even thought that pipeline were all looked like the Alaskan pipeline. They don't realize that all the pipelines are buried underground, for example. So it really weren't in the center. But ever since Keystone became a, a part of a national debate, it, it's changed the dynamics of the industry so that those that either are proponents or opponents of the industry can focus on the siting of pipelines. So states have taken on a more proactive role. Um, and when companies like Kinder Morgan are looking at siting new pipelines, um, you take into account a whole host of issues. It's not just now about, not that it ever was, but less so now about a company wanting to transport from point A to point B. Now you got to look at the regulatory framework, uh, the political uh, situation, uh, the time it's going to take, the certainty of that, the certainty of the regulatory framework uh, before you decide to build. And there has to be, as you know, when you build infrastructure projects, you have to have certainty on uh, the cost and certainty on the schedule or projects don't become viable. So you've got to look at, at all of those factors in deciding whether a project is really going to be feasible. Like, for example, our uh, project that we're building in Canada, you've seen a lot of attention on that and the feasibility of how that project is not only now that it has national certification, uh, how all the provincial issues are going to play into that, which are a huge factor. You know, we, we had a project uh, recently that we were looking at in uh, Georgia. I don't know if you've heard about that one called Palmetto, uh, involving Georgia, South, South Carolina, and Florida, designed to get uh, product to Savannah and Jacksonville primarily, also North Augusta, that uh, was going to service markets that had currently no pipeline transportation. So it was all coming in by truck or ship. Uh, which is a problem for Jacksonville and Savannah, particularly uh, with weather events. Uh, but that project was derailed not by customers not having interest, not by a regulatory uh, process that we fully researched and believed we could meet and exceed the regs of South Carolina and Georgia, but by political issues that developed in the state of Georgia that led to the legislature and the governor signing a law that banned pipeline construction in the state. That was in the middle of our project, banned products pipeline construction in the state. Not only could you not build a pipeline, you couldn't apply for permits to build one. My point being is that the the, the framework has, has, has changed from uh, years ago, and you really have to pay significant attention to a whole host of issues related to the siting of pipelines. And by siting, I mean where is it going to go? Uh, why are you building it, and why are you building it there? And finally, a question we're getting more often these days is, why can't you utilize existing infrastructure that's already there? You know, we have over 2 million miles of pipeline in the country. Fair question, right, for folks to ask, is why can't you utilize what's already there, repurpose or something else, what, what, uh, what you're building? So a lot of more, I think, uh, specific questions about those types of issues. But again, we've always said, uh, as one of the major operators and builders of pipelines in the country, there's really not a regulatory framework that if we know about it well enough in advance, that we can't take into account onto scoping a project. Any state, California, New York, Illinois, whatever it might be, 
as long as we know about it well in advance, we put those dynamics into the engineering and construction and commercial aspects of a project. And if we can't meet and exceed those, we won't build it. And I will tell you this, there are hundreds of projects you've never heard about because they don't meet those standards. We can't do it. But once we uh, announce a project, at least from Kinder Morgan's perspective, you can guarantee that we have done our homework on that. But even with all that, the bottom line is the, the toughest part of locating infrastructure in the country from our perspective is the uncertainty that's out there. You can't have a Georgia situation where you've invested millions of dollars in a project based upon a regulatory framework that was in place and have it change midstream. And that sounds like political uncertainty. Political uncertainty is a big part of it. And I do want to ask you a little bit about how that developed, because I remember there was a little bit of opposition to the Alaska pipeline, but it was it was nothing like what we saw with the Keystone. What changed? Changed on... What changed to to um, create this level of political opposition to pipelines? Well, I mean, if you go back to Alaska, which I know a little bit about, because before I went to graduate school and became a became a professor, um, I actually worked for BP up in Anchorage for three years. I wasn't I wasn't working on the oil pipeline that was built way back in the seventies, but I was working on um, this kind of literal pipe dream to build a natural gas pipeline from Alaska to Chicago, which hasn't been built and almost certainly never will be. Um, but it was fun. Um, but if you go back to the 70s and the Trans-Alaska oil pipeline, I mean, that did run into a fair bit of environmental and political opposition and ultimately took a 51 to 50 vote in the Senate to actually make it go through in 1973 or something like that. Um, that's some ways the keystone of its time. Yeah. So let's let's talk about um the oil and gas industry, the way it's changed just in sort of the last decade. That might have some relevance. It's gone from big hubs in, in the Gulf, Texas, California, to shale oil production that's dispersed all over the country. What challenges or opportunities has that shift created for the pipeline industry? So this is Tom. This is Tom. One of the, <clears throat> I think one of the big shifts is the fact that it's dispersed around the country it, by itself doesn't necessarily create a transportation problem because there was a time in the United States where a lot of other Midwestern states were big uh, oil and or gas producers. Um, and you know, since those reserves have, have receded, there exists some uh, pipeline infrastructure um that Alan, that Alan alluded to uh, in a lot of those other places that would be, you know, in principle capable of either uh, transporting uh, new, newly found production or being upgraded so it could do so. Um, but in North Dakota is, provides a great example of a place that basically didn't ever have that much in the way of oil production, even if you go back to the standard oil days, um, that all of a sudden, you know, basically had a million barrels a day uh, in a very short period of time. Uh, in a place that doesn't have a lot of demand, uh, at least relative to, you know, where we see, you know, other uh, you know, major refining or consumption centers. And that was, relatively speaking, pretty far away from um, other uh, regions of, of a lot of demand. And so uh, it did create this interesting situation that, you know, is related to the, uh, the controversy of the Dakota Access Pipeline, which was we had all this oil. Um, we had maybe uh, what was going to end up being half the effective capacity that would be necessary to actually get it out of North Dakota. Uh, what was going to be a way of, of actually getting that uh, to places where it could be used most efficiently, uh, be it on the coasts? 
offbeat in some of the more cent, uh, central Midwestern refining uh, locations. And the industry basically came up with a response in the form of uh, transportation uh, by rail. So instead of building a pipeline, at least initially, um, there was a lot of production that ended up moving uh, out of North Dakota and into the Gulf and then onto the East Coast and a bit into the West Coast as well by train, which uh, in, historical, in the historical sense is actually kind of unusual. Uh, Ryan and I uh, have done a little bit of work trying to figure out when was the last time that there was this much you know, uh, crude moving around on trains, uh, and it was possibly during World War II, and if it wasn't during World War II, it was during the Standard Oil era. Uh, and so the sort of discovery of oil in places that essentially never had a meaningful uh, sort of oil and gas base, like in the sense that we sort of imagine today, uh, created these very interesting transportation dynamics that you know, allowed for crude to move in ways that we haven't seen for a while, uh, but also created some of these controversies over uh, the development of more efficient modes of transporting it. Now that raises an interesting question for the environmentalists, because if you're opposing pipelines and so oil moves onto trains, isn't it the case that trains are less safe than pipelines generally, more prone to accidents? Uh, it's certainly true that there have been a, a string of, since 2010 of sort of notable train crude oil train derailments, and some of them um, quite disastrous, like the like the disaster in Quebec back several several years ago that killed something like 30 or 40 people. Um, and so between the spills and something that I think is less appreciated um, that. Um, which is air pollution from diesel train locomotives. Um, this is something some researchers at Carnegie Mellon have been working on to try and understand the air pollution trade-offs between crude by rail, where you get emissions from locomotives, some of which are traveling through dense urban areas, like the switchyards just south of us, south of us in Hyde Park uh, here in Chicago, um, to some of the emissions associated with the electricity that powers pumping stations on pipelines. And the air pollution from from diesel locomotives and trains um, is actually quite significant, uh, more so than um, I certainly had ever been had ever expected. So, from an environmental perspective, um, as you sort of try and add up those damages, um, there really is this concern that sort of regulations that sort of reduce pipeline construction or impose barriers to pipeline construction result in the oil wants to move. The oil is going to find its way out. And whether it's by a Jones Act ship or whether it's by rail, it's going to find its way out. And that's going to have some other environmental consequence. So did you have some? Well, look, I, just to add on to that, I, you know, in the transportation business, the, the more you have options, the better. Um, so I think there is a place, certainly for rail. Obviously, there's a place for ships, a place for trucks, a place for pipelines, a place for all of this. Um, and we appreciate the, the interest in flexibility by the shipper, but also uh, the interest in certainty. And there's there are price differentials we're talking about here, too. If you're going to have more ability to have options, that's going to cost more. Certainly doesn't apply just to crude by rail. That's a pretty simple fact, common sense. Um, so there's no question that the bulk of energy transportation uh, from a products perspective, from a natural gas perspective, really from all energy forms that are transported uh, in that sector is by pipeline. And uh, the pipelines are in the ground. And But I do think what you are seeing as part of this 
I mentioned this briefly before, is repurposing or redirecting pipeline systems. I'll give you a real example that includes Illinois. We built uh, the Rockies Express Pipeline uh, maybe about 10 years ago, which was at the time, in fact, one of the FERC commissioners, one of the largest pipeline projects ever in the United States that one of the FERC commissioners uh, called it the king of pipelines. It went eight states and uh, thousands of miles. Um, but it was built from basically from Colorado to Ohio, right into the Utica Shale. But at the time, uh, the Utica Shale really wasn't uh, that prolific. So what, what we don't own the asset anymore, but the company that does own it is now reconfigured re, uh, the line so the product is coming west rather than come from, from the Colorado uh, plays there, coming east, now it's going west and going to the Chicago market. So an investment in an asset like that, when you think about it, uh, adjusting some compressor stations, maybe building some new compressor stations or on a products line, some new pump stations, the ability to adapt, I think, is relatively not new, but different for pipelines. And we're thinking in different ways so that a pipeline, as its purpose originally, is not necessarily the only use of that pipeline. And, you know, we're also, uh, a lot of our projects that we're building uh, have uh, partners, and we're in joint ventures, and we're working with other companies. So we're able to potentially utilize other systems. Uh, as part of uh, a project. And so I think that is what you're going to see moving forward a lot is what is the current system that we have? How can we either individually or collectively utilize what we have? And not necessarily with the big Dakota Access or a big Rockies Express or a big Keystone, those mega projects, if you will. But how can you incrementally upgrade a pipeline, add a loop? add an additional compressor or pump station, um, build smaller laterals off of the main line. Those not only are uh, more efficient from a cost perspective, they're uh, easier to permit uh, because they have a pretty defined scope. They're easier to explain to the general public because they're wanting to know why are you building that? The question I get more and more these days is, isn't, don't you already have enough pipelines? <laughs> um, and it, if you look at the sheer number of the total miles of pipeline, you say, that's that's a hell of a lot of pipeline. Um, you know, not dissimilar to roads. We're still building roads, but we have a lot of roads. Um, but we're changing the way we build roads, right? Um, we're building uh, high-axis vehicle lanes or, you know, all the different things we're doing. My point is that I, what I've seen the industry do in the last decade is adapt and recognize that the dynamics have changed. Uh, I'm not saying there's never going to be another mega project, a multi-state uh, uh, project, but um, the, the, the attractiveness from an industry standpoint, I think the uh, requirements from a regulatory standpoint are, 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 are coming together here. And collectively, we're saying, let's look at other ways where we can accomplish what we need to, utilizing ships, utilizing trucks, utilizing trains, to transport in a more efficient, efficient and effective way. And that really addresses um, 
the difference in flexibility between trains and between pipelines. And um, she, you mentioned that shippers appreciate the flexibility of trains. Tom and Ryan, I know you've done some research on that and on the way um, that fluctuations in crude by rail volumes can actually affect the volume of pipelines that are built. Could you brief us a little bit on that research? Uh, yeah, so we've been thinking really hard about exactly this question. Um, using Dakota Access as kind of a case study example of sort of how these trade-offs play out. Um, but, and sort of the way we've been sort of thinking about it and modeling about it um, is to kind of think about the fact that if you're building Dakota Access, um, not a Kinder Morgan pipeline, an Enbridge pipeline, um, in order to sort of put that massive capital true mega project in the ground, um, that we're talking billions of dollars of capital, and in order to finite finance that, you're going to need some, you know, true hard commitments from shippers to actually use the pipeline and use the pipeline for a very long time. So prospective shippers sign up for 10-year commitments for that, um, which, you know, think about a 10-year shipper pay commitment, that's about as inflexible as as it gets. Um, and for someone who wants to move oil from the Bakken down to the Gulf Coast, if that's option A, option B is to use crude by rail, which has more inherent flexibility, but maybe is more expensive. Um, how does that trade-off play out? Then the way we think about sort of motivating the study is to actually think about some of the environmental issues that we talked about earlier. Um, so take, for example, air pollution, not nitrogen oxides that come from trains. Um, if the EPA were to tighten up emission regulations that raise the cost of moving stuff on the rails, um, to what extent would that sort of change the calculus for shippers if crude by rail costs went up? Um, and to what extent does Dakota Access actually start to look more, more, you know, um, more like an option that they want to ship ship on. So, in fact, environmental regulations could uh, favor pipeline projects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we see what we see in our model and what we see in the data is that um, anything that would make crude by rail a less attractive option. So, for example, tighter environment, environmental regulations um, uh, out of locomotive engines or more costly uh, tank car lease rates or any of the other things that go into the cost of uh, moving a barrel of crude uh, by train as opposed to a pipe, those things in principle should make um, a prospective shipper looking at a, a pipeline project like Dakota Access or maybe a future pipeline project um, out of North Dakota, uh, think maybe twice about, about saying, well, I'd rather have that flexibility I get out of rail because that flexibility is somehow less valuable now in the presence of, of, of higher environmental costs or higher um, other logistical costs that are going to be inherent in um, a crude by rail uh, shipping solution that uh, a pipeline might necessarily avoid. And so what we're trying to think about in this project is with a little bit more cost, either by way of environmental regulation or something else, how do we think through how much bigger or smaller um, a potential pipeline project would be as a result of the um, reduced interest in, in the alternative to a pipeline? Yeah. Or it's sort of another way to put it, Alan spoke earlier about there's always going to be this mix of transportation modes, whether it's rail, ship, uh, pipeline. So then you can imagine as we sort of shift the cost of each of those around, sort of how does that mix change and how, do, how does oil shift from one to, from one to the other? You know, the, 
the the challenge we in the in the pipeline industry too um, face is the if you're a shipper looking at your long term output, um, you you need to to have relative certainty about if we're proposing a pipeline, we've got to get that thing built in a certain amount of time that's going to meet the needs of that shipper. Uh, and, you know, when we're trying to factor in the uh, viability of projects, I cannot emphasize enough the, the schedule aspect of it and the regulatory process that contributes to that. Not that that, that anyone is asking for exceptions or regulations that uh, are more permissive of pipeline construction. Um, I think the regulatory framework that we have, we've been able to success, successfully build in. It's the changing scope of that. And I think what you're seeing, unfortunately, can be a chilling effect on pipeline construction. And companies, rather than take the risk, and we're a risk-averse company, it's no secret, rather than taking the risk of building a project that maybe 10, 15 years ago we might have done. The risk now is uh, probably, if we're, we can't reach that certainty, of not building so that the projects from us or our peer companies that may have satisfied a lot of this interest and maybe to get these pipeline projects in uh, service in a year and a half or two, now you may be talking about two and a half, three or four years, which is too long for the shippers, too risky for us, not going to be built. Um, so I think whatever regulatory framework we have moving forward, and there are obviously the states are looking at this, federal government, the FERC, other agencies, um, to try to deal with how do we best manage this incredible energy revolution we're having in a responsible way, is there, as I, I'll emphasize once more, there is a place for all of these modes of transportation of energy. Um, and a framework that allows for projects that can be built and constructed on time, fully meeting all of the important environmental safeguards that are part of that, uh, but also recognize that necessarily dampening or uh, chilling the effect on one aspect of that system is not necessarily good or in anyone's best interest. We're almost out of time. But before we end the podcast, I want to move away from oil and ask you about something else interesting that's happening. And it has to do with carbon capture and storage, which, well, we could say it's not happening, but a lot of people are interested in seeing it come to pass. And if it does come to pass, there's a, a potential demand from enhanced oil recovery, mm -hmm. which would mean transporting carbon dioxide to oil and gas wells in order to get more oil or more gas out of those wells, and then the CO2 stays underground. So that looks like a potential new delivery opportunity, a need for pipelines to transport CO2 to oil fields. Is that too far away to talk about, or is this something the industry is thinking about preparing for? Well, I can speak from our experience on this, and we are the industry leader in, in transporting CO2. Uh, we transport basically from the Colorado uh, area, uh, southwest Colorado, uh, to fields in Texas uh, for EOR, enhanced oil recovery, as you mentioned. Now, the carbon capture element is, uh, we've certainly looked at that, and I've talked to our commercial folks about this. We haven't been able to uh, 
find a commercially viable aspect of that yet. Um, but let me tell you, we're certainly interested if something can be developed. Uh, the technology to transport CO2 is there. It works. It's effective. It's, it's extending the lives of, of oil fields by 10, 20 years or more, making them more productive. That makes a lot of sense in so many ways to utilize existing oil fields that are there as long as possible. So the transportation piece uh, is, is in place and effective and very successful. Uh, but is there another way uh, that's developing with technology? We certainly hope there is, and we'd certainly be interested in that. All right. Um, thank you, Alan, Ryan, and Tom, for joining us today. And thanks to all of you who are listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on EPIC's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Special thanks to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast for assisting with this recording. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.